0: Even in those failures, you know, if you really, if you have those big goals and dreams and you really uh, go after them wholeheartedly and you make that challenge something that is so much bigger than you think, even you think is possible and you do fail, uh, it doesn't really feel like a failure. It just feels like you came a long way and it ended.
1: This week on Heads and Tails, we hear from former Green Beret turned Texas Longhorn turned Seattle Seahawk, Nate Boyer. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week, I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. All right, welcome back to the Heads and Tells podcast. This week we have Nate Boyer, who's um, he was an aspiring actor, turned Green Beret, turned uh, walk-on long snapper at the University of Texas. Uh, he got picked up by the Seattle Seahawks. And today he's also going to tell us about what he's up to now. So, Nate, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, could you start off by talking about, like, where you grew up and what, what sports you might have played?
0: Yeah, I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um my my dad's a racehorse veterinarian so I kind of grew up around sports uh and and my my mother went to uh, she got her PhD from Cal Berkeley. So I grew up right around there a big baseball uh basketball player as a kid. Okay. Um always loved football, never played, but uh you know growing up in the Bay Area with the 49ers uh when I was young, it was uh it was good times. We won a lot. And um, yeah, I, I mean, that was, uh, those were my sports. I was pretty, I was really good at baseball. I was pretty good at basketball. Um, didn't have any major you know, scholarships anywhere, anything like that.
1: All right. Uh, but you had an football. athletic background.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: All right, cool. So can you kind of talk about the struggles that you had in school? And I remember in a couple of articles I read about you, you, uh, got in some trouble and stuff. Can you just talk about, you know, those issues?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was just a lack of uh, focus and effort, I think, uh, in, in uh, really committing myself to, to school. I wasn't dumb. I always tested actually really well. I just didn't know how to apply myself and didn't really care to uh, unless it involved uh, <laughs> the, the athletic field in some way. Right. Um, and even then, I didn't know how to really practice. It was sort of just a lot of dreaming was going on, you know. <laughs> why, why do
1: you think? You were like thinking um, about all this stuff or?
0: Yeah, that's just how my brain works. I'm still like a big time dreamer. I just now, uh, later in life, I, I understand how to how to apply it, what you have to sacrifice to be great at something. All right, uh, I cool. didn't know that then. I mean, I was just a kid, so I just didn't know that. And, you know, as far as the trouble, I didn't get into crazy trouble, you know, I, I got a I had had a run in with the with the law a couple of times just from you know shoplifting and just being a general idiot as a kid. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Well, so were you dreaming about becoming an actor when when all this stuff was go- was going on like no. when was so the, the acting time when
0: thing, the acting thing's kind of been blown out of proportion? <laughs> that didn't even ever cross my mind until I was like 19. Oh, okay. Uh, and even then I didn't really I, you know, I, I graduated high school. I always wanted to be a pro athlete. That was my dream. I graduated high school. I moved down to San Diego and started working on a fishing boat. And I uh, thought I wanted to be a firefighter maybe. you know. But in the back of my head, I still wanted to play. I still wanted to be, an athlete, be a pro athlete in some way. That was just like a dream. Okay. And uh, when I moved up to Los Angeles, I moved up here – um, yeah, to, to pursue the, the film industry, I ended up taking some acting classes and, and, and some other things. And, I, you know, I booked one commercial for Greyhound buses a long time ago, but that was really it. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, didn't really work towards it necessarily. I partied a lot and, uh, did all kinds of odd jobs out here. I ended up working with autistic kids for a while, which was actually really rewarding and uh, very cool. Cool. What'd you learn and from then, that experience? Uh, uh, just humility. Um, also, I think more than anything, I needed those kids more than they needed me. And I learned a lot from them about, you know, how, how we, everybody looks at the world a little bit different. You know, we all have our different experiences and environments and culture and, uh, I guess, upbringing that shapes us. And and, uh, we all uh, know, even if we're from the same uh, neighborhood, you know, we don't necessarily all have the same values and beliefs and ideas. And those kids, especially, they just, you know, they approach the world in a different way. They see it in a different way. And uh, it doesn't make them, you know, stupid. It just makes them different. They're actually quite smart in ways uh, that, you know, the the quote unquote normal person aren't. And, And they're a lot more sensitive to to, to things in, in, you know, in the world around them. And it's really interesting. And, and they're uh, more than anything, they're, they often are are very loving uh, kids, you know, and they they just crave uh, that companionship uh, that they don't, they don't often get as much as a a quote unquote normal kid. Um, And uh, so I just like to be in a part of sort of bridging those gaps and helping them make friends at school. And, teaching them sports and, you know, teaching them that it's okay to be a little bit different and all those things. Cause that's kind of how I felt.
1: Cool. So you said that you almost needed them more than they needed you. So like, why, why do you think that, you know, that happened, you know, like everything happens for a reason. So like, why do you think you kind of fell into that place? And like, what impact did that have on your future?
0: Well, I just, uh, you know, I took a lot of things for granted and, uh, I mean, we live in a bubble here in America. Oftentimes, um, not everybody, but but a lot of us, where we don't uh, we don't see anything. You know, what do they say? You don't see the forest for the trees. Um, we can't see past uh, you know five feet in front of us because that's just what we're used to. And a lot of times, we don't take into account um, how it is everywhere else. You know, and and much of the world uh, is not. Uh, it's not like here, you know, we, we've got a lot of things to complain about, but the reason we have a lot of things to complain about is because we have so many things.
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's funny. uh,
0: You know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of places that aren't like that. It's so much simpler. And in a lot of ways, a preferable way of life, in my opinion, even though they don't have this, the luxuries and whatnot, Um, all those things, all those luxuries and, you know, the benefits of living in a, in a free country that's, mostly thriving uh they can also kind of turn against you
1: awesome uh so i guess that's a good transition into kind of what led you to uh Darfur. i don't know if i'm saying that right either but yeah yeah no that's right yeah so that that's like a crazy part of your story too like uh, if you could kind of tell that to the audience i think that'd be it would be awesome about how you ended up there and what kind of obstacles and challenges you had along the way
0: yeah i uh you know i i started traveling when i was in my early 20s you know it was after after 911 it happened my my view of the world was quite different um you know it had a big effect on me it had a big effect on everybody i think that wasn't a, a small child at that time uh, in, in our country and uh yeah it just i i was so curious about what was going on in the world and i wanted to get outside of that bubble i was speaking about and and really um Find my place in the world, I guess, and I, st- I was traveling all over the all over the planet. Uh, I would save my money up working, and then I would just travel on the cheap, you know, hitching rides on trains and staying in hostels and whatever. And uh, it was all great. I was exploring, but I wasn't. I didn't have a purpose behind it. So then I, I read this. I was back here in the states, and I read this Time magazine article about the Darfur tragedy and the the genocide going on in in Western Sudan and. I uh I just made it happen. I bought a plane ticket, I got a visa, flew over there, kinda weasled my way into the yeah the that, refugee that part's camps, the best. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean I, I didn't have uh I wasn't supposed to be there. I didn't have the proper deck documentation, I wasn't with any NGO. Um I tried to go that route, but they all shut me down. So I just uh I just was found committed to found yeah, finding a way to, to help those people in some way.
1: So like how'd you get the courage to like you know pretend like you were a yeah. doctor without borders and stuff like that? Like I would I'm a <laughs> terrible liar. So like I feel like there's no way in hell
0: I would have been able to do that. Well, that's the problem. I'm a good liar. It's maybe that's it's not a good thing to brag about, but uh <laughs> right. No, I, I I think I just I think more than anything I uh I was so committed to it because I knew I needed a, a drastic change in myself, right? So right. I knew that that was, that was key. And I didn't even know what that change would be or what it would look like, but I knew I had to put myself in a pretty austere environment where I didn't have any of the comforts, nothing to lean lean on except, you know, myself. Um, and, and just try to, just try to figure it out and just try to make it happen. And, and for and for whatever reason, this issue that 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 genocide that those people in that country at that time weighed on me more than anything ever had before, and it was just like you have to find a way. there was like a voice in my head saying that, and uh and I just thought you know once I get over there, there's no way they're not gonna let me help out. I mean if I'm boots on the ground Yeah, yeah I, turn
1: you around, yeah,
0: yeah, I paid my own way out there. And there's got to be work to be, there's definitely work to be done. I know they were shorthanded at the the camps. It said that in, in articles that I'd read. There was a huge influx of new, of mostly women and children coming in because all the men are all, all off fighting or already killed. And, uh, these, you know, the women and children have been, a lot of these children had been, you know, taken as soldiers or maimed and the women raped and, um, villages burned to the ground, like. Everything that the very little they had taken from them, like there's there there's got to be a place for me over there to help. Right. People. So like, so what
1: was your biggest obstacle business. when you got there? So like, my my podcast is all about uh, overcoming obstacles in sports. And that's why I kind of loved your story and wanted to get you on because you almost like sought out obstacles, you know, to get yourself out of your comfort zone. So I'm just curious, like, you know, each stage and each, you know, new journey and challenge that you presented yourself with, you know, what was your obstacle in each one? So what was your obstacle in, uh, in Darfur?
0: (laughs) The law and, uh, my personal (coughs) safety personal safety and langu- I mean, langu- the language barrier and also uh, just the danger involved. I mean, I guess I said that personal safety, but um, and the unknown. I, I I, didn't even know what I was getting into. I, as as much research as you could do, uh, you know, 12, 12 years ago, it's very different than now, um, you know, on Internet wise. And it was there was not a lot of information out there. There still isn't when I look up those areas, you know, about the villages and the people and how you even get to the camps, you know? Right. Um, so I had to figure that out on the ground. It was a lot of adapting and uh, just being honest, being open and honest and blunt about why I was there to people. Um, sometimes it sort of shocked them and they were kind of confused, but at the same time, once in a while, it would strike somebody as like, wow, this guy, he flew from the comforts of America and all that, bought himself a ticket. He came over here, you know, risking his safety. Um, and he doesn't even know how he could help. He just wants to. Yeah, it's you know, pretty that, awesome and that, and that that amount of passion. And they just, uh, you Genuine, know, enough yeah. people helped me along the way. I, I, you know, I snuck my way onto a well, didn't sneak. I convinced, him, talked my way into getting on a UN flight that was going out to the refugee camps. Um, and went out there, and and I mean, I got interrogated and all kinds of things, but I just stayed
1: true open, to your, honest, and,
0: yeah. yeah. Awesome. And, that uh, pays. Worked out.
1: Um, so before we move on from the, the Darfur part of your journey, um, what was like the thing you missed most about the United States when you were there?
0: Probably the girls. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I didn't miss that much. I hate to say that, but yeah, I, I, I felt, Bad that these people didn't get to experience this, I knew I was going home to this great country, and I felt you know I felt more sad for those people that would never get to experience what, what I was going home to um and they didn't even know you know they had no idea how that
1: it yeah that it even how, existed, how great probably. it was
0: i mean they had they they knew it was awesome all all of them wanted would love to be here <laughs> I'll tell you that much but right. they they just couldn't fathom it, you know much like I couldn't fathom that place until I went there and right. uh yeah, that that hurt me more than anything. I was just like, man, I didn't do anything to deserve to be an American. I was just born here. You know, right. and, and many of those things. You did some couples. some
1: internalizing as a, a young adult there. That's that's impressive. Oh, um, for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah, I mean it right, shaped so, me in a in a big way. It's it's a lot of the reason I I'm doing the things I'm doing today.
1: That's awesome. Uh, so when you came back, you, you ultimately enlisted in the army and then you became a green brace. Can you talk about, um, your decision to, to do that and to also, uh, and what, what obstacles you, you kind of had to overcome, you know, during the process?
0: Well, I wasn't in great shape physically. First of all, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I hadn't been playing sports at the same level as I was in high school. I played basketball pickup games here and there, but I didn't really. Uh, I didn't really train much. I, you know, I rolled my own cigarettes. I drank too much. All those kind of things uh, that didn't uh, weren't conducive to the life of a Green Beret. But, um, but I had passion more than anything. And once I found out what the Special Forces did, that the Green Berets, everything that they do is by with and through indigenous forces uh, in the countries they, they mean to liberate. And that was exactly what I wanted to kind of continue to be a part of because that's what I felt like I did at a small level in the Darfur, minus, obviously, the, the fighting part. Um, but, yeah, having that human, humanitarian mission as part of the, the mission set of the, the special forces was uh, appealing to me, you know. And so I, I went into it with this idea that joining the military, I wasn't just going to, you know, be a soldier. Like I was going to be, it was like green beret or bust. And, uh, I signed up with that specific contract. If I didn't make it through, I would have been sent to, you know, I, I committed to five years initially. So I would have been sent to the needs of the army, wherever they needed me. And I would have done it. I wouldn't have complained, but there's no way I was going to quit throughout the training. And it was, uh, I mean, it's, it's the hardest training in the military.
1: Uh, can you kind of talk about what was the hardest part during that training? Like you said that you weren't in the best shape. So was it the physical aspect or was it, is it mostly mental? You said like you went in with the mentality of not quitting. So is that really all, all it yeah, took? Yeah. I mean,
0: that's what, that's the only reason I made it. It's because I had that mental, I had that mental aspect. I've been to the door for, I'd seen these type of people that I wanted to fight for. And that pushed me through because yeah, I mean, when I first got to basic training, like I scored one of the lowest on the PT test in my whole class. And by the end of basic training, I was like the highest scoring guy because of how I worked just in those 14 weeks. And I did that same thing throughout the Q course. I mean, the, the, the hardest thing in, in the special forces qualification course is the, the consistency every day, you know, putting on that giant rucksack that just weighs on you. And, you know, whether it's land navigation or small unit tactics or whatever, um, seer school, oh, it just never ends. Like you go out there in the, you go out in the in the field for five weeks and train, and then you'll come back and you'll get like a weekend off, and then you're right back out there, and it's just wow. You gotta really want it <laughs> because it sucks. I mean, it's they say uh, SF stands for special forces, and during the Q course, SF stands for suck fest because it is <laughs> that's funny. It's brutal. I mean, and it's just it just keeps coming at you. It's a it's a solid year and a half. Of just, um, you know, hard training. A lot of it's individual and isolated, and you know that voice in your head gets real loud, and uh, you got to uh, you got to ignore it or or acknowledge it and fight through it anyway or however you deal with it. But um, is
1: that because when you're overseas, you're going to be by yourself a lot, or is that just um, because you it know makes it's you just think more? It's,
0: it's such. First of all, they want self motivated guys in the in the unit, right? Every special forces right. team has about twelve guys on it, and that's typically the only guys you work with. So you're you and your twelve man team. It's just you guys. Sometimes you go to do split operations where it's just you and another guy. We rarely, if ever, uh, do anything by ourselves. And that's just um, so somebody already always has your six o'clock. You know, someone's always got your back. Um, you always gotta. We 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 use the general term "battle buddy" in the in the army. Uh, it sounds kind of goofy, but uh, it makes sense. You, you don't ever want to be alone. If something were to happen, um, you know, you want that guy next to you to be able to, to treat you in a situation or, 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 or vice versa. And, uh, also, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't cover 360 degrees by yourself. It's just our, our physically, our, our eyes don't work that way. Our body doesn't work that way. Um, it's just tough. So, uh, but the reason for all the individual individualism in the training is because they want a guy that can think outside the box, make it happen, figure it out on his own. Uh, and you get twelve of those guys together, and you can really make something special. I mean, a twelve man team is designed to do the same job as an entire conventional unit in the military. You know, because we all have different skill sets and we're able to basically develop and train uh, indig- an indigenous force to. Um, to be effective on the military, uh, you know, in the battle space out there. And those are guys you're taking with very little education and there's a language barrier. And sometimes they don't have that same desire and you have to like mold these warriors uh, from nothing into and, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a challenge. That's takes awesome. A, takes a so special kind of guy.
1: It sounds like, yeah, special forces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so exactly. what was the greatest lesson that you learned from being a Green Beret? And how did that kind of help transition into uh, life as a Division One college athlete and then also a professional athlete?
0: The, the greatest lesson I learned is the, the, the key to success and something that challenging and, and, and large scale is obviously, you know, we, we say in the military, always place the mission first, right? <laughs> So remembering that through the planning process, through uh, when the bullets are flying, all that stuff, the mission first. And for me, the overlying mission within all the specific mission sets, the overlying mission on a trip like that, on on a deployment, is fighting for the man on your left and right. You know, doing everything that you do is for somebody else. It's for the guy next to you. Protecting him, keeping him safe you keep that mindset and whether that man is wearing an american flag on his shoulder or he's wearing an iraqi flag or an afghan flag you keep that mindset it takes the worry off yourself you know all the all the selfish concerns about your own safety about uh, your own needs and wants and puts them on somebody else and it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have that mindset when you know this guy is relying on me if i don't do my job the best that i can stay in my lane and uh, watch his back and protect him. Um, you know it's going to be—it's my responsibility when things don't go right in that in that in that way. So, and sometimes there's things you just can't control. I mean, you can't help. Yeah, I've I've lost friends out there, and uh, and and there's lots of people out there that are, you know soldiers, veterans, uh, war fighters that have lost people, and it, there's nothing they could do. But I I'm willing to bet you know so many more have been saved because of that mindset. Because it's about the man on your left and right, and uh, that's that's what I learned. That translated, believe it or not, that translated into football. I mean, in, in football, I, I ended up long snapping for three years, which is like not a sexy position. It's not a it's not ideal, but I found a way to get on the field. And the reason I did that, yeah, is one I was, of the
1: best you know football teams in the country too. True, yeah, <laughs> Don't and it was that. it's because
0: yeah. I had that mindset of like, look, um, this may not be exactly what I want to do, but it's uh it's going to make the team better, you know if if I don't have a per, a good long snap, it's going to affect the punter and if and if the the snap's bad, the punt may be bad, and that, a sec, that that affects field position, and it could affect the outcome of the game. So what I do, I'm not the quarterback, but what I'm doing matters. you know my job matters exactly, and I've got to do the best that I can do for the rest of the guys, not for myself.
1: Awesome. Um, so what do you, when you walked on at, at Texas, you know, what do you think set you apart from the other guys who were trying to walk onto the team?
0: Age. <laughs> you mean, think
1: that made them like look out for you more or no, do you think no, I mean, I'm just
0: joking, age? but I was 10, I mean, I was oh, 10, okay. years, I was 10 years older than everybody else. So I definitely, that definitely set me apart. Um, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I also knew, uh, you know, I had life experience going for me and I knew that if I just shut my mouth and went harder than everybody else, it would greatly increase my chances of making the team. Even if I had no idea what I was doing out there, if I was going a hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction, as long as I was going a hundred miles an hour, uh, it would, it it would help. That's the kind of things that, that people notice, you know, they notice a work ethic and the person that just puts their head down and grinds. And so that's what I did. I mean, that's what I did through the uh, you know the tryout process uh, and, and I carried that on throughout my career obviously I I mean I, I I opened up a little bit to people and became more accessible and I mean I'm definitely one of the biggest you know jokers in the locker room and all that kind of stuff but at the beginning it was like going into a situation like that around these people even though I'm older and I've been to war and done all these things uh, I haven't earned my I haven't Earn my stripes in this arena yet. And right. the only way to do that is to outwork those people uh, day in and day out around you, you know, and, and, and d- don't do it in it. And then you're not doing it to show them up in some way. It's just to show them how much you care and that it matters to you. And, uh, but I mean, the, one of the biggest keys in going into something new like that is just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, uh, just, just don't there's no reason to
1: yeah just like your green man. beret yeah training you know you, you show up every day and do what, you, what you're asked to the best of your ability and yeah if it sucks yeah don't don't voice your opinion but that, that that's yeah. awesome and i think that's great advice too for like any athlete who's trying to make a team or win that starting spot and like you said like just go as hard as you possibly can, and like that'll set you apart from from everyone else. I yeah. think that's I mean that's people, great.
0: people respect action way more than they respect uh, words, you know. And uh, awesome. And that's uh, I mean that's the way you gotta that's the way you gotta approach anything in life. I think. Awesome.
1: So um, we're gonna start to wind the, the interview down a little bit. I really appreciate your your time again, Nate. Yeah, um, so what was your what was the greatest thing that you learned from being a Texas Longhorn?
0: The greatest thing I learned from being a Texas Longhorn. I um,
1: played for Coach Mac Brown, yeah, right? A, yeah, a I played for Mac. The, I played for Charlie. State.
0: My I played for Charlie Strong my last year. Um, okay,
1: that's cool too. He's an awesome guy too.
0: Yeah, no, great guy. You know, I you know one big thing I learned for me was that the result is not, uh, I guess, where my where my happiness lies in anything. So I never won a championship. I never won a big 12 championship or obviously a national championship or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I had a couple seasons there where we, we we lost a lot of games, but yeah. at the end of the day, I think my most, my most memorable moments, uh, my most memorable games were, were actually during a loss. You know, I mean, I, I had one, one big comeback win in the bowl game in 2012 that we were honoring, uh, a, a real good buddy of mine that passed away. Um, and he was a, he was a green beret as well. And that was really special. That was a special win for sure. We came from behind in the fourth quarter and we were dedicating the game to him. It was really cool. But my senior year, we, awesome, lo- yeah. we, we lost chills. to, uh, yeah, it was amazing. But my, my senior year, we lost to Oklahoma in the, in the red river shootout. And we dominated the game, you know, we gave up a pick six, we gave up a kick return touchdown, but when you looked at the final stat line, I mean, we outgained them by 200 yards, we dominated the line of scrimmage, we just couldn't, you know, we couldn't put it together at the end there to make it happen, and it was a transition year, it was Charlie's first year, and really young team, except for me, And uh, but after (laughs) the game, the whole stadium, Felt like Texas had beat the crap out of Oklahoma, even though they lost on the scoreboard. All the OU fans left. They left the stadium when they were getting. They were bringing the flag out in midfield, and all the Texas fans stayed, and they were chanting "Texas fight" in the stadium. And oh man, it was I just got really chills. Special, That's awesome. Man. Yeah, I just I got emotional at that time. It Was my last game against OU. And, you know we lost, but it was like, and you know I thought of all kinds of things that had happened in the process, and and uh, how hard we we would fought, and sometimes it doesn't go your way, but that's not what matters at the end of the day.
1: It's not the result. I think that's a great, you know, message for our listeners too, because I part of the reason why I made this podcast is to help athletes who may have gotten injured or may, you know, have a career-ending injury or stuff like that. So, and I think it's just like in my example, you know, I didn't reach what I had, you know, worked hard to get towards, which was like play college football and that kind of stuff, but. That's, you know, we, it's not about the result, you know, it's about the moments that you had kind of like leading up to whatever it, it might be. Um, all right. So where do you get the courage to try new things and get out of your comfort zone? Cause you've done that, you know, your whole life. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing.
0: I mean, that is, uh, my, my comfort lies in discomfort. <laughs> I, I, awesome. I just, I, I can... love, I love challenges, man. I, I just, they feed me more than anything. And, uh, even if I never make that goal, even if I never attain it, um, it's the it's the you know it's the it's it's the grind and, and going for going after it is what really makes me happy. Um, and it's got to be a big challenge for me. It's got to be something that I think that I maybe can't do. You know, the back of my head. I've is there ever
1: something that you've actually failed at? Because it seems like everything you set out totally. to do. You, yeah you go for it i
0: went uh, i tried out for the for the delta force when I was in the army and um and I actually made it through selection somehow I got selected even though I was super young in army you know in time time and service but during the course i mean this is the greatest three hundred the three hundred greatest soldiers in the world and uh you know they, right towards the end they came to me and they said, You're just a little too green, you know you're too young, you haven't deployed yet um but, you you know, you did everything you could. And, and so, I mean, I failed. Ultimately, I failed in the NFL. You know, I got cut from the Seahawks uh, in training camp last year. But even in those failures, you know, if you really, if you have those big goals and dreams and you really uh, go after them wholeheartedly and, and you make that challenge something that is so much bigger than you think, even you think is possible, and you do fail, uh, it doesn't really feel like a failure, it just feels like you came a long way and it ended. you know what i mean um right so yeah I guess that's the best way to 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 no that's that. a great
1: answer that's that's awesome um so so once you did you know fail at, at those those things, did you just, like think of something else that you wanted to pursue or like how did you kind of deal with that failure
0: yeah i mean i just uh a lot of times you gotta just redirect all that energy and a lot of times that pain, you know, of not reaching your goal, you know, use that as fuel right. to 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 you know, to 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 go after that next one.
1: Awesome. Uh so last two questions. So actually maybe it's just one question. What's your personal definition of perseverance?
0: Perseverance is uh you know, is understanding the obstacles in front of you and uh, understanding that they're probably going to be you at some point, uh, but accepting that challenge anyway and just and just picking yourself up every day and, and, and continuing to go after it, you know? I mean, that's it's not a great uh, Webster's Dictionary. Uh, Example, no, I'm not looking
1: for but, Webster's. I want, I want your definition. So that, yeah, that was I mean, awesome.
0: That's, that's, that's basically it. Just, uh, rec- recognizing, recognizing how hard it's going to be to, to, to reach whatever goal you want to reach. And then, you know, smiling, smiling in the face of that challenge and, uh, and attacking it anyway.
1: That's awesome. Um, all right. So. I know in the news you've you've been you wrote a letter to Colin Kaepernick. So you, anyone listening to this, go go over to the uh, show notes for this episode, and I'll have the article um, posted. That was a really cool take on that whole situation. Um, and where so else can that? people find you? So you plug your social media.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I got a I got a website, uh, nateboyer.com. dot and also I'm on uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Nate Boyer. Uh, yeah, thirty seven at neighborhood 37 that's my favorite right, number, man. too. thank you at neighborhood 37 sorry good call.
1: no it's no, it's all good <laughs> I, I don't forget that because that was my favorite number so that's why i was like when i saw your story i'm like oh man he wears 37 too i'm like that's awesome <laughs> i'm actually um during veterans day i'm gonna post these episodes and i had another interview with another green beret who went to west point um his name is ben harrow and um You are 37 on the lacrosse team there, too. So we got a bunch of 37s uh, coming up on the, the podcast.
0: That's awesome.